Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. Today, I'm joined by Kirk Bourne, a data scientist, renowned data influencer, executive advisor at Booz Allen Hamilton, and an astrophysicist who spent almost 20 years working with NASA to support some of its biggest projects. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Kirk. Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. So with someone like you, it's hard to know where to start. You've had such a spanning career from government to academia to private sector. Uh, but I've heard you say that you really only ever had one career, and that was a scientist. So tell us a little bit about your thinking. How did you become a scientist, and how has that shaped your career? Well, if you really want to know, it goes all the way back to when I was in uh, grade school. And uh, an uncle of mine gave me a Christmas present, and it was an astronomy book filled with just color pictures of things in the universe. So it wasn't very detailed scientifically, but it was just a very colorful, beautiful book of images from the sky, the planets and the stars and galaxies. And it just inspired me so much. Uh, I wanted to understand that stuff. I wanted to understand how it worked. So we recently had a guest on from NASA, uh, Mike Massimino, who was an astronaut on uh, some of the Columbia shuttles. He made a comment that most of that work was done on the ground and that there was tons of work that was done to collect and curate data and to make it available to make sure that you know you didn't fail when you're up in the air. So you're part of that process. You're part of the the, uh, the digital library that was called the National Space uh, Science Data Center. So tell us a little bit about that process, about collection of data. Where did the data come from? How did you make it available? And what was the process for, for making decisions with all that data? So the process was basically uh, astronomers and scientists would do experiments uh, on NASA missions. So, uh, for example, this, the space shuttles would always have some kind of experiments attached. Uh, even if the astronauts weren't involved with it, they were automatically collecting data about the planets, about the sun, about the interplanetary medium, and about deep space astronomy stuff. And we would collect the data from those experiments and uh, store them in our data center, uh, create metadata, digital catalogs, and libra- basically library function to index the data to help people find out what it was. So we created uh, catalogs and set up interfaces for people to search for any kind of data that they needed to do their research projects. So anyway, these data sets would, would basically address any astrophysical problem. So basically birth of stars, uh, death of stars, formation of black holes, interactions of black holes with their environment, uh, clouds of gas where new stars are forming, uh, galaxies in the universe, evolution of galaxies. It just there, there was really sort of no limit to the questions that people could address with those data. So after you left NASA, you went on to the world of academia. You went on to set up what was credited as being the first data science program at George Mason. And so years before that fateful uh Harvard Business Journal article about the data the data scientist being the sexiest job of the 21st century, you were on to something. You talked about the dawning of the fourth industrial revolution. You talked about this need for digital innovation and for a different kind of analytics. What, what were you seeing at that point that others didn't quite see yet? Yeah, so let me just qualify a little bit. When, I, when you say first data science program at George Mason, yeah, we created the first one in the world at George Mason. So it wasn't just the first one there, the first in the world. And what uh, happened to me was even before then, I was still working at NASA uh, at that data center that you mentioned, 
we were collecting data from all these experiments. And then one day, uh, a scientific team was uh, wanting to bring their data to our data center, which is what we did. We collected the data when the teams were through with them, through with the data. And this new data set was literally uh, by itself twice the size, more than twice the size of all the other 15,000 experimental data sets we had combined. So I knew something was changing. That was back in the late 1990s. And so as I looked around, I realized that the other sciences were also collecting a lot of data, not just astronomy. And then I looked further and I realized business and government and everything was collecting tons of data. So it became clear to me that we needed a world of people who were educated, literate in using and accessing and understanding data. So I left NASA after 20 years at NASA to go to George Mason University. This, that was 2003. And we decided uh, we really needed to start a data science degree program. And we opened the doors to the program in 2007, which was four years before the McKinsey report that talked about the, the big gap, talent gap in data science. 2011 that happened. In 2012 is the Harvard Business Review article that you mentioned about data science being the sexiest job of the 21st century. Yeah, and and you've gone on to talk about what it takes to make a good data scientist in these programs. Um, and it's not technology. So it sounds like in some respects, the, the gap that you saw was really around capacity, ability to understand both the, the technical nature of being able to store the data, but then the also the skills to be able to understand that data. So let's talk a little bit about what does it take to make a good data scientist? Um, it's not technology necessarily or math, um, you've, you've talked about the importance of failure in your process and the acceptance of failure, the, this idea that you're going to make mistakes. Uh, we had a guest, Tim Harford, recently, who also described you know, how many great th- breakthroughs and in innovation come through failure. Tell us a little bit about uh, the characteristic of, of accepting failure, how you teach that to your students, and, uh, and what the impact is. Well, you make a good point there that the, it's the aptitudes of a scientist which really determine a successful scientific career because the technologies will change and the and the scientific questions you ask will change even as we discovered in the world of machine learning algorithms are being invented daily so to speak almost fresh new algorithms changing the way people do things every year and so you can't just base your education upon learning a whole bunch of skills and those and technologies and talents in those four years you're in college and expect that to carry you through for a full career. You, you need additional tools in your tool belt, and those tools are the aptitudes that you're talking about. And by that, I mean things like commu- uh, communication, collaboration, creativity, curiosity, critical thinking. And yes, this idea of, of lifelong learning, continuous lifelong learning. And lifelong learning, or just continuous learning, by definition, basically means learning from failures. Learning is not learning unless you can just you can unlearn the thing which is no longer valid or no longer useful and learn the new thing that is useful. So failure is about learning what is not working, what doesn't work, in order to proceed with what does work. So learning from failure is what humans do. And I, I mean, I think about just the, the natural ways that little children learn. Your parents tell you not to touch the hot stove, but you don't really understand what that means till you touch the hot stove the first time and burn your finger. Then you learn, do not ever do that again. <laughs> right. right. So, we, so uh, there's, there's, a, there's an expression that, uh, that says, uh, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> <laughs> and I joke with people, I said, that's an exact definition of machine learning, because machine learning, 
you build a model, you learn from the errors in the model how to improve the model. And it also that same statement also applies to business. And it also applies to raising teenagers. <laughs> Good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> Excellent point. And I was I have I confess to having been thinking about the accelerometer on my teenager's car as you were having that conversation, the bad judgment that's connected to that. Um so uh, going along with this idea of of kind of an, a, expecting failure, kind of making sure that people get into it, there are kind of two different ways that I see this really trying to take hold in the business world. The first is uh, as you start to think about agile methodologies and, and data ops and different things, the idea of creating an algorithm that is new. Um, requires you to take a risk. Many descriptive types of algorithms. Uh, you can basically say, this is a P times Q type of analysis, and you don't need to necessarily fail to do that. But anything that is kind of new, innovative, will require you to try something that's never been tried before. If it if it was easy, someone would have done it before. And as a result, that's where you see this kind of failure. Um, the other is as you take a business person through the process, they start to understand the data a little bit more. They start to understand some of their assumptions that were failures, not just the data. Um, how do you how do you usually talk to business clients around that concept of both academic uh, technical failure and also kind of business attitudes and assumptions that need to be changed as part of the process? Well, that's a challenge I encountered multiple times. Uh, usually the, the way that challenge looks in real life is I, I start talking about sort of the fast fail mentality of analytics and data science. And occasionally uh, a client would interrupt me and say, we're, we're not here to fail. But what I do is try, is try to tell them that it's really about that incremental learning. And thank goodness we, we do have, we already have DevOps and agile terminology in the world. So, so, so the battle for me is, is almost already won by, by just referring back to what they're already familiar with, which is this agile technology and what often is called like the minimal viable product, right? Mm -hmm. Build a small thing, learn from the mistakes on that one, and build the better and bigger, bigger thing. Uh, and I've heard an expression called the minimal lovable product. So it's not just proving <laughs> that you can build a proof of concept, but, but, but build a proof of value. So a business owner, when you see a proof of value, that's far more interesting and useful to them than a building a proof of concept. Because proof of concepts are everywhere, but if you can actually create value from data, Start showing how analytics can produce value, and so the the uh, the idea that we we build once and, and stop is so foreign now, right? Especially with agile methodologies and DevOps. Again, we already have some some terminology that business users and, and business leaders already can understand, and and the same thing applies to analytics and data science, which is this idea that it's really a scientific process. That is, you, it's not once and done. It's fascinating. Um, so let me turn to a different skill that I think you've highlighted as being particularly important for a data scientist, which is curiosity. And I love the story of picturing little Kirk Bourne looking up at the sky in the beginning of the universe, trying to figure out how it was all wired. Um, but in some respects, there's a question on the table, which is, is curiosity something innate or is it something that you can teach via frameworks in an education. So I'm interested in, to, in thinking and hearing about how we teach the students of tomorrow to be curious, to actually start them down the right path. Well, the good news is we are all naturally curious. I mean, anyone who has ever seen a child knows this is the case, right? They're always testing things, putting things in their mouth, asking why, 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 why. So it's just part of who we are. It's, it's, it's in our DNA. You might, you might say we evolved and survived 
the, the mil- millennia of evolution of life on earth by being curious creatures, that we just didn't take our assumptions and assume they were right. They move into pattern recognition, that is, they recognize whether this animal is going to eat them for lunch or they can eat the animal for lunch. Either way, if you make the wrong decision, your life is over. <laughs> and so you don't discover you don't discover the outcome you don't discover that particular knowledge unless you are curious you ex- you experiment and you test and you find out can we eat these berries oh they're they're poisonous <laughs> oh we better not eat these berries ever again so first of all it's natural what happens i would say i don't mean to be too negative <laughs> uh but but in some education system it's all about the students memorizing things and not exercising their curiosity muscles their learning muscles. And I think what we need today is people who, who just be more curious. So there's this famous story of, of Walmart back in the early 2000s where they were uh, uh, stocking their stores in the state of Florida uh, prior to the arrival of a hurricane. There was a predicted hurricane coming and they stocked the stores and you know people bought all kinds of stuff and the hurricane passed and so forth. But what was interesting about that year, that was 2004, there was another hurricane predicted shortly after to also hit Florida. And then there was yet another one that was coming after that. Now, this was very unusual because in most hurricane seasons, the hurricanes will go all over the place, right? They'll go up the coast, down the coast, they'll go into the Gulf, they'll go into Mexico, they'll go to Florida, Louisiana, wherever. But these were three back-to-back-to-back hurricanes hitting Florida. So Walmart said, hey, let's look at our data and see, what is it that people really, 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 really want to buy prior to the arrival of a hurricane? Because we have all the data from this past hurricane, and we see another hurricane coming. And much to their surprise, they discovered one particular product that increased in sales by a factor of seven over the normal daily sales of that product. It was just an enormous increase. I mean, it just blew their minds when they saw this. This one product, factor of seven increase prior to the arrival of the hurricane compared to a normal business day. And I asked my students to stop and think, what would that be? What do you think that is? And, and so the students, so I'm just telling them this story, and I don't tell them what the product is, and they'll start thinking about things. Well, maybe it's water, maybe it's toilet paper, maybe it's generators or batteries or flashlights or plywood or all kinds of things. So they're starting to think, right, what could it be? What could it be? That's, like, that's curiosity in action. Then I tell them, it's strawberry Pop-Tarts. And they go, what? <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to take you down a little uh, data science uh, exercise here. We're going to call it, we're going to build a scoring model. And they'll go, what's a scoring model? And I'll say, okay, well, you've, you've encountered scoring models all the time in school, of course, because the teachers will give you tests and exams and homeworks and things. And they'll take some kind of weighted average of those things to compute your final class score, your final class grade. That's a scoring model. So, okay, what's going to we do about these Walmart products? Well, what if Walmart took a, a scoring model, applied it to their entire inventory, and they applied one point for every item in inventory that might induce someone to buy a product prior to the arrival of a natural disaster like a hurricane? So we start thinking about that and said, okay, well, okay, it's a, it's a convenient product. Uh, it's we might lose electricity, so I better make sure I, it doesn't need refrigeration. Oh, and it also doesn't need cooking and things like strawberry Pop-Tarts. It's uh, individually wrapped packages, so it, once we open it, it doesn't go stale because we don't know how long the power will be out. So give one point to all of those items, those, those particular categories. Uh, children love it. 
Adults love it. It's a breakfast food. It's a snack food. It's a comfort food. Wow, we're building up points here. Hey, it contains fruit. <laughs> Questionable. We'll give half a point for that because maybe some people buy it because they think it has fruit. <laughs> if you give one point for all the things you can think of that might induce someone to buy something prior to the arrival of a natural disaster like a hurricane, you might find that once you've done those scoring and you then rank things in order, that something like Pop-Tarts would pop to the top of that list. I really like that story because it focuses on three different components of what you're really trying to achieve. The first is that you are really starting to harness curiosity. You're really starting to try and drive this idea that's anchored in our natural tendency to want to know the answer. The second is that you're really tapping into this framework model that is about how do you really start to understand how to go about that assessment? Um, how do you actually construct a, a world in which you can do that? Um, and then the third is that it's just fun. <laughs> and those things are always so memorable. And I love all of those stories and, and people react to them. So I think in some of your uh, frameworks, you have uh, described that as a novelty discovery. You've said that it is uh, something that is an unusual occurrence. And you have a framework for some other kinds of discovery. Would you mind describing what those other classes of discovery are? Yes. Uh, that's actually one of the things that I do when I have that, those conversations with clients or others. And that is that uh, they, they may ask me, uh, what is this data science thing? And I like to, to talk about it in the context of things that are very familiar to people. It's, it's not about the mathematical algorithms, but it's really about things we naturally do. Again, I, I'm bringing it right back to what we naturally do. So when we see unusual things, anomalies, humans are really good at detecting anomalies, right? If something looks out of place or is different from the last time we saw it, just like if you go to an apple bowl and there's all green apples and one red apple, we notice it immediately. And not even an adult, even a child will immediately detect something different. So humans are good at anomaly detection. That's one thing. We're also good at detecting groups of things. Clustering analysis, if you want to call it that mathematically, but it's just class discovery, group discovery. So one of the categories of discovery is finding the segments in the groups and classes in our population. Another thing we're really good at is seeing trends and seeing patterns and correlations. Now, of course, we have to be careful because we learn from statistics that correlation does not imply causation. But nevertheless, given X, you can find Y. That's a correlation. X between Y. You can, it's, you're basically saying, ha, huh, you can build a predictive model from a correlation because given this number, you can predict what that number will be. Given this event, you can predict this outcome. So correlation discovery, trend discovery, is also a very natural type of thing that humans can detect, and we codify that in machine learning, and we call it predictive analytics. So we mentioned novelty discovery, the anomaly, but the other things good people are good at is seeing connections between things, links and associations between things. Sometimes we call that the six degrees of separation story, right? Oh, you know mm -hmm. my cousin. Oh, you went to school with my brother. Oh, this kind of... So, we start. We, we know how to make connections and see associations, and we find them interesting. Well, we can do the same thing with our data. People who bought this book also like that book. People who watch this movie may also like to watch this other movie. Well, all of a sudden, we're talking about data science and recommender engines and machine learning, when initially we were just talking about what you naturally do as a human. So I like to use that framework to just draw people in, and all of a sudden, we're talking about just sort of your natural cognitive ability and, that, and suddenly we're talking about machine learning algorithms, and it was a very natural, smooth transition. And, they, and I, I, I said, hey, now we're talking data science. And they look at me, and I said, hey, you just learned data science. 
That's right. And this connection between data literacy and data science is really anchored in all of these kind of frameworks. Can you? Are you curious? And do you have a framework for understanding what our brain naturally does? That is true. Uh, the, but the, the other step in data literacy, besides the pattern sort of discovery that we were just talking about, is to recognize data when you see it. That's the thing that's mm-hmm. one of the first hurdles in data literacy is, under, is having people recognize that everything is data, right? What you see with your eyes, data. What you hear with your ears, data. The words that come out of your mouth that other people hear, data. What you touch and feel, those sensors called fingers, <laughs> if you're measuring something as hot, maybe you can't tell me the exact temperature of that hot thing, but you know it's hot. All right, so it's all data. <laughs> all the apps on your phone, all the things you search for on the internet, it's all data. Things you purchase, your purchase logs, where you go, what, you know, what, what apps you use, etc. it's all data. And so first, that first so, step in data literacy is recognizing data is everywhere, recognizing data for what it is, and that's part of the, the exercises that we do. And then we, we go into the sort of pattern detection and pattern recognition. So detection is unsupervised learning. Pattern recognition is supervised learning. That is, I recognize it again when I see it again. Um, so I'd like to change gears a little bit. You have an interesting claim to fame. Um, Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense in the George W. Bush administration, kind of became somewhat famous for his uh, thoughts on the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns of the universe. Um, I did a little bit of research on this, and uh, this this uh, this model, um, which is uh, has seems to have its origins in NASA, and I think it may have gotten to the Pentagon from you. Well, it turns out that. Uh there might be a connection there. And I think it's uh, more than just circumstantial. So what happened was uh, after 9-11, in 2001, September 9-11, I was working in my NASA office and I got this phone call and they said, uh, the voice on the phone said, the president would like to brief you tomorrow morning on data mining. And I just stopped in my tracks. I said, you mean the president? (laughs) <laughs> and they said, yes, the president of the United States of America. And I was just flabbergasted. I said, why did you think to call me? And they said, well, we looked around and we realized we needed more of the stuff called data mining to maybe discover potential terrorist attacks before they happen and not be caught cold like we did this past time. And so they said, they figured that it would, they had to check with the science agency. So they called NASA and they said, hey, Kirk Bourne is our resident data mining expert. Well, there's a couple of shocks there I had for me. First of all, I didn't really ever consider myself an expert in anything related to data mining. I was just, had very minor knowledge in those days. And, and second, so that was the first surprise. And the second thing was it, it dawned on me, that was at that moment when it dawned on me that the growth in data and the need for these tools of data mining, data science, machine learning, was not just in the sciences, but in world important events like national security. So anyway, it, it turns out uh, that I was a, a contract employee. That is, I wasn't a NASA employee. I was, I was managing a contract. I was a contract employee working for a small company. And by law, I'm not permitted to advise the president. So they, they didn't know that. They thought maybe I was a NASA employee. So as a consequence, I didn't actually get to brief the president. So that was sort of the downside of that story. I got the invitation, but I couldn't do it. But I got what I called second prize, and that is I was invited to the executive office of the president, and I was able to brief the the new office, which is the transition planning office for the just formed 
Department of Homeland Security. So when I was going to give this briefing to these people in Homeland Security and the Executive Office of the President, I, I asked them before I went, I said, what can I possibly tell you? I don't know anything about national security or the problems you're facing or your data or anything. And they said, just tell us what you're doing in astronomy with data and we'll just translate that to our problem set. And I said, oh, well, I can do that. And I talked about this concept of the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns. So I gave that uh, as part of my presentation uh, to the Homeland Security Transition Planning Office people. And I talked about the unknown un unknowns, which are finding those things, discovering those things that you never expected. That, that they, were, they were never part of your thinking, and all of a sudden they happen, which is exactly what 9-11 basically was for us. We never imagined such a thing could happen in that way. So imagine my surprise, many years later, I was at this conference, and a someone puts up a slide about the unknown unknowns in his presentation with a picture of Donald Rumsfeld. And I said, wait a minute, how did he learn about that? Was it his people that I spoke to who communicated that to him, and then he picked up on it? And so sure enough, I found a, a news article that talked about that press conference in, I believe it was like March of 2002. So I went back to my file folder on my computer, and I have every file that I ever created in my life on my computer. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a file pack rat. And I actually found the PowerPoint presentation still with the date of the presentation I gave, even the file uh, uh, metadata in the, in the operating system of when that file was last modified was like literally two weeks before Donald Rumsfeld gave that uh, discussion at the press conference. That seems like a pretty strong coincidence to me. Hmm. Yes, uh, correlation, not causation, but uh, the symptoms and signs are there. <laughs> terrific, terrific. So, Kirk, how can our listeners find more about you, your writing, your research, and your work? Well, I'm all over social media. Uh, well, not all over. All over Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, so, just Kirk Bourne on LinkedIn and Kirk D. Bourne on Twitter. Kirk, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Joe. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Kirk Bourne was there at the beginning of data science, defining what it meant to be a great data scientist. And those things are still true today. Be curious, follow a framework, and think of your work as a journey of continuous learning rather than a task to be completed. He reminds us that a good data scientist should be, well, a good scientist. <laughs>